Hello, Little G Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about postures in the Mass, specifically standing, sitting, and kneeling. What does each one mean, and why do we do it? So, without further ado, episode 32 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Have you guys, have you guys ever... Um heard the Stephen Sondheim song, um, Vatican Rag. Yes, I have. No, I haven't. I forget how it exactly goes, but it's like everybody makes fun of the Catholic Church. You know, sit down, stand up, kneel, sit down. It's all these repetitious things. But those are all what we call postures, right, Chris? Yeah, uh, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, walk around in a circle, do it again. Catholic aerobics. uh, And those are just meaningless, right? You know where the hokey pokey comes from? Nothing meaningless. You know, you know the story of the hokey pokey. I do not. know They make the, story. the kids uh, do this little dance: put your right foot in, right foot out, shake it all about. That is an anti-Catholic game they were teaching kids because of the Latin term. You know, this is my body, hocus corpus enum. Oh, enum, hocus enum corpus. That whatever. The Latin wait, is. what is yeah. the real thing? So That's wait. the real. Well, I don't know. I think it's hoc est enum enum. Hoc est enum corpus meum. He can say it. Say it really fast. Edit that out. Anyway, hokey pokey. So I get the, word, the sheet, the sheet I slit. We get hocus pocus from that too. Okay. Um, and so it was a mockery of the gestures and the movements and the postures of the mass. And then we teach our kids this and it's just a cute little kid's game. Oh. But gestures are not a kid's game, right, Chris? No, they're not, nor are postures. I used to be addicted to the wait, hokey wait, wait. pokey, but I turned myself around, so. That's what it's all about. But okay, <laughs> postures and gestures. What's, what's the difference, Chris? That's what I say. What's the difference? There is a difference, Jesse. This filled with meaning. Actually, Jesse's, Jesse's making a gesture right now that I'm glad the listeners can't see. I'm drinking my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> just keep your, just keep it all where it belongs. Okay, Chris. So posture versus gesture. You know, I hadn't really thought about this till we did, we did the pre uh, the pre podcast uh, warm up, but I think there is a difference. I think uh, a posture. Um, we did a little, looked up its uh, etymologies just now. It means to place or to put or a station. And uh, to my mind, for whatever that's worth, it seems like what you, uh, the position of your body kind of in a, in a static uh, uh, state or position versus uh, a gesture or an action is something that your body is doing, the body in motion. And the principal postures, at least uh, in, in the liturgy, are, what, as we said, standing, to stand, sit, Kneel. Kneel. Occasionally, there's a, a prostration, lying flat on your face. You know, Good Friday, or you know, at an ordination, or uh, maybe a consecration, or something like that. Right. So these are uh, postures that our bodies uh, assume that, like everything else in the liturgy, is trying to uh, convey a meaning, express a meaning from within us, but uh, make us uh, docile and help to foster a particular uh, element of the faith in us as well. I was just watching an episode of Downton Abbey, and Lord Grantham didn't want his uh, Catholic son-in-law, so he talked about he went to Mass once, and it was like going to calisthenics, up, down, sit, oh, yeah. up, down, uh, this, that, the other thing. <laughs> and there's a lot of moving around, but it's not just moving for the sake of moving. It's not just aerobic exercise. It 
what are, what are gestures and well postures? I don't know what we're talking about today. What do postures do for us, Chris? Yeah, so like, let me just, the sign of the cross, would that be a gesture or a posture? I, I would, I would say it's a gesture. Yeah, it's something that you're thinking. doing with your hand or your arm. Um, I haven't watched too much Downton Abbey. You should. Dennis, but uh, uh, if, if one were to watch a football game. <clears throat> that is a bit more, bit more manly, I, <laughs> I admit. You might recall from uh, uh, the beginning of the last season, there was all this uh, uh, controversy about Colin Kaepernick and him kneeling during, well, how did it start? Right? So most of the players, most of the time, they'll stand during the national anthem. Which and, is a sign of respect. Well, that's just it. Yeah. So it's a sign of one thing, and he didn't want to signify that, so he sat during the national anthem, and there was a big uh, uproar about that. It's a sign and, of disrespect? Well, that, that's the big question. Uh, so he took kind of uh, perhaps a middle uh, posture, which is kneeling. So he went from standing to sitting to kneeling, all trying to convey a particular uh, sentiment uh, that he had in mind about uh, you know, the country or the flag or whatever it might be. But what I found interesting in all of this is, you know, if you were to listen to, to talk radio or sports radio or anything, um, you know, these people realize that just on the human plane, that all of these postures, standing, sitting, kneeling, uh, signify a certain thing. And so you don't have to be a Catholic to know this. You don't have to be a theologian to know this. You don't have to be a liturgist to know this. You have to hu be a human being because uh, this is how we express uh, and foster in ourselves uh, human sentiments uh, of the mind and the heart. So what knee was he kneeling on when he knelt? Yeah, that's it. Because that means something too, right? Well, I, I heard once upon a time that like you, you genuflect with your right knee to the Blessed Sacrament and to your yeah. left knee to the uh, to a person or to the, to the Pope or something like. Is that right? Oh, I never heard the left knee part. No. But, yeah. Yeah, but it's true. We we. Well, we I thought the, talk about the right, the right knee right. was was a king. That was like the is that right? one down on the right knee for a king. And so we think of Christ, Christ the King. That's what I heard. Yeah. Well, it is true that what in, in Latin right means. Uh, uh, the, de the dexterous hand is, mm -hmm. is, the, is right. And sinister, and sin sinister, sinistra is left. Yeah, is left. And there's always something about, we know lefties have righties too, and if you're a left-handed uh, pitcher, you can make and a And that's why nuns hit your left hand in grade school, because they want you to be right-handed, because there was something devious about being left-handed. Is that right, Kevin? Well, oh, I, he fell asleep. <laughs> so, but yeah, even, I mean, notice that. Uh, this is uh, culturally... Um, there's something about the right hand that has uh, th that's come down to us as having a different meaning from the left hand. You know, where, for example, is Jesus seated? The, the right, right hand, hand of the, the right hand, right hand of, the, of the, father. the father. Yeah, and even um, there's not to get too far afield on this, but there's this uh, blessing that uh, Jacob gives to his grandsons uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. I can't remember which one is older. Oh yes, I, right. I'm and, excited uh, about where this is going. And so uh, Joseph brings uh, his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, to their grandfather uh, Israel uh, for this blessing, so that he can he uh, the grandfather can put the right hand on the older child and the left hand on the younger child. But when he goes to give the blessing, he crosses his arms over. In the shape of the a, old switcheroo of a, of a cross or of an X or a, a, a chi, and so he gives the younger child, um, I think that's Ephraim, the greater blessing because that's what comes through the right hand. But in all of this, uh, you know, our bodies signify uh, other unseen realities, and this is the bottom line when we talk about liturgical postures. So, wh why don't we go into some of these postures and we can talk about what they each, you know, mean or signify, like a 
what maybe a bow because there are two types of bows. No, right? no, bowing is a gesture that That's we're going to hold for another because oh, you're doing something with your body. This is how you can remember but, it. If you would do it in during road rage, it's a gesture. <laughs> if you would hold it for a while at mass, it's I, a posture. I constantly am bowing at people yes. when they cut me off. You just start kneeling right there <laughs> at, the, at the wheel. So save gestures and actions for another podcast. But okay. let, let's look at these uh, principal postures that our bodies assume over the course of the liturgy. Standing, sitting, kneeling. Which one do you want to take first, Dennis? Well, let's start with standing. Why not standing? Mm-hmm. I will not stand for this, but I will sit because I'm sitting. What does well, that expression mean? Yeah, I will not give honor and reference to that idea by standing. I will that's, stand a, that's exactly, it. you took the words right out of my mouth, Dennis. And this is maybe the, the, the Colin Kaepernick phenomena too. Standing is a sign of what on the human plane? Respect, deference, readiness. Yeah. Firmness. Uh, like yeah. You're, yeah you're, standing on your own two feet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, willingness to act. Right, so the, the fire alarm goes off. The people who are standing are the ones who are able to move uh, more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the cardinal comes to visit here at the seminary, all the students are waiting for his address. So they're in the dining hall, and they're just sitting, 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 talking. Then the cardinal comes in the door, and they all be, they're all quiet, and they stand up. And you're, if you're not paying attention, you're like, suddenly there's a hush in the room, and everybody's standing up. Like, what has happened? And it means the cardinal has arrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so standing uh, means all of these things. And we'll go ahead and use the... Um, are the are there any stories of standing in the scriptures you can think of? Well, that's the uh, argument that the Old Testament, the, the standing was the normal posture for prayer. It's rather rare that uh, kneeling would be used for prayer, in, except when it was penitential. So it was this standing before God, which is still kind of the language that's used. I stand before God or present myself to God uh, that way. And, and we have certain faculty members here who are very interested in the idea of standing. The priest is standing before the altar. It's, a, it's a, an inheritance from the Jewish tradition. In uh, in Cardinal Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy, he, he recounts the story that, of course, I've missed these details when I have heard it before, of the martyrdom of St. Stephen. And he is he himself, that is Stephen, I think, is kneeling and being stoned, and he's praying for his persecutors that they don't know what they're doing. And he looks up into heaven, and he sees an image of Jesus. Now, we've mentioned before that very often Jesus is depicted as seated at the right hand of God the Father. But in this instance, Cardinal uh, uh, Ratzinger points out, he is standing as he's receiving uh, Stephen's prayer, who is uh, uh, kneeling. So almost, uh, I, I think the point he makes is that Jesus is ready to act and to receive him into the heavenly kingdom. Hmm. So, Excellent. What about liturgically, though? So if standing means all of these things, kind of theologically, biblically, culturally so we stay so we stand uh in the opening prayer we stand for okay, the why? gospel so uh here comes uh here comes the opening song and everybody's kneeling or sitting or something like that and in comes the priest and we stand what does that signify well there's a procession and so we're honoring what i would uh, my guess would be the that the priest is in christ in that moment and so just like you said dennis with the cardinal christ enters the room we all stand as a sign of respect Right. That's right. We stand as a sign of respect to greet uh, uh, the priest who's going to you know, serve this assembly, this body, in, in the person of Christ the head. It's a sign of respect. Think also about uh, a little bit later. Um, so we sit to listen to the first reading and second reading. But what happens when the gospel is we proclaimed? Can, we stand. We stand. Right. Same thing. As we stand because we believe that in the gospel it's Jesus himself who speaks uh, to his church. There's even some discussion about the standing position being one of dignity because you're baptized. So you're not so much in the fear of the angry God because you're separated from God, but you can 
stand in the presence of God because that's your own dignity as a baptized person. You, if you cowered in fear from your father or your mother and hid in the corner, you know, in a ball, they'd say, well, you don't really love your parents or you don't trust them or whatever. But if you have an easy relationship of trust, you can stand before them and say, hey, mom, I'm hungry. Hmm. Time for snackables. I need to teach Agnes that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Liturgy starts in the home. Yeah, that's true. Your domestic church. Okay, you want to go on another one? Sure. Okay, so there's standing. What about, you want to do sitting? What does sitting signify? Well, the U.S. bishop says uh, sitting is generally the position or the posture of listening and meditation. So when you're thinking about some things after communion, when you're listening to the first two uh, readings, say at a Sunday Mass, it's a listening posture. The gospel is the exception because it's the sort of premier, most important. Because you're not listening when the gospel is read, right? <laughs> well, not only are you listening, but you're listening <laughs> and giving respect. It's uh, the pinnacle of revelation. But the hom- you sit during the homily. And then you sit during the homily to mm-hmm. listen. And then, um, so posture of meditation and listening. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's more passive. It's more signifies docility. It's definitely comfortable. If for this sure. Is true. Of all the three, it's the most comfortable. But if you think eleven players on a football team and the wide receiver goes out wide and he sits down, I mean he's not going to be ready. Or, or the defensive back is sitting down. Well, he's he's going to get <laughs> he's going to get schooled because mm-hmm. he's not ready to act. It's more of a a position of uh, of, of receptivity, I guess. Although sitting also had been a sign of authority of the, the teacher. We talk about the bishop having a big chair, the cathedra in his Oh, church. yeah, that's right. We were and, talking about uh, that. Bishops still can give the homily from the chair. They don't have to get up to the ammo because they are sort of speaking ex-cathedra in a sense, you know, from the chair, from their authority in the chair, in that sitting posture. And there's the, in, at least in the music realm, having first chair is something that's important. You're sitting in the most privileged place. But that right. probably has something more to do with the location of where you're sitting as opposed to sitting itself. Yeah, and the chair, the, the object of the chair it signifies the, the importance of who's sitting where and what their authority mm-hmm. is. So first chair could mean that too. Imagine, uh, you know, on a university campus, uh, so-and-so is the chair of liturgical theology at uh, Mondelein Center, or whatever it might be. What does the, mm-hmm. the chair signify? But as you're saying, you know, a position of one who speaks... Uh, from authority, and uh, they say in the uh, good old uh, in the good old days or bad old days or whatever, uh, like if for students to learn, it would be the teacher who would be sitting in the chair, and the students would come, and they would all stand around and listen to the teacher who was in this uh, this this position of of seated and in the chair who would who would give the teaching. So. You should try that this week, Dennis. When you go to class, you sit down and make all the students stand yeah, up. I kind of have Downton Abbey on the brain. You know, my sister gave me the DVD set for Christmas, and I've finally been watching it. But, the, you know, the cook comes upstairs, and she's all nervous in front of Lord Grantham. And he sits at his desk, and she stands there all nervous until he tells her she can sit down. It's this position of uh, subordination in a way, standing before the presence of the, the seated guy who has the authority. Mm-hmm. We even have a feast day in a, uh, devoted to a chair and presumably to, see, to chair, sitting chair, down in yeah. it. Too. Chair of Peter. Mm-hmm. That is true. So, yeah, I mean, like this and so many things, you scratch the surface a little bit and you discover that there's, uh, there's a lot more significance uh, to, the, for example, this, uh, these postures than you might uh, initially realize. Right? So it's more than Catholic aerobics. It's more than just going through the motions, standing, sitting, kneeling. It's, um, right. They should tell us that something different is happening. Something's changing. We should act differently or be, you know, in a different state of mind during those different postures. Yeah. And right. the body's part of that. Right? We're body and soul, we're mind and body. So 
the hopefully the posture or the gesture will reinforce or strengthen what you're actually doing. Somebody, you know, mentioned the other days, where were you when such and such happened? You know, the space shuttle blew up or the Kennedy got shot. And people say, well, I was sitting in front of the TV or I was standing over there. There's something about activity that helps you remember. In fact, I don't know. I hope this is not true. <laughs> but somebody at the lunch table told me the other day, before they had real maps in certain medieval societies, they used to take a kid out to the property of the land and like beat him <laughs> on that spot where the border of the property was. Because he would Whoa. always remember, I was beaten by that tree. So there's something oh about my like goodness. trauma, gesture, and bodily stuff that makes We are not encouraging that, by the way. No, no, no. But remember, <laughs> like, if anything ever bad happens to you, you remember what you remember. I bet that Jesus remembered body. where he was crucified, though, I guess. And so does everybody else, right? <laughs> So the body and mind, memory, and, and um, magnification of what you're doing is connected with, uh, with posture. Hmm. Okay, so that's sitting. We've done standing. Next is kneeling, right? Kneeling. What does kneeling mean? Well, traditionally, it was the penitential uh, posture. So people who were um, penitents in the traditional understanding of the sinners who were trying to get back in full communion of the ch- with the church. Or um, then it became later on a posture of adoration, particularly in the Middle Ages. So that's why the U.S. bishops decided we kneel at the Eucharistic prayer in the U.S., which in many countries they don't. They stand during the Eucharistic prayer because that's the arrival of the king in the Eucharist. But because in the U.S. it's, it's become associated with adoration, adoration of the, the presence of Christ, we kneel. So, so hum- it, humble beseeching and adoration. Go ahead. Jason. Well, yeah, I was just going to say. So it's unacceptable, I guess, in America then to stand because we talked about standing being a posture of, you know, being firm and standing in front of our Lord. Um, so what does the church say, Dennis? You kind of alluded to it, but what does the church say in America? Well, the United States bishops decided that's the normative posture is, is kneeling during okay. the Eucharistic prayer, but in other places. It's not. Every now and then you go to a Mass and somebody European might be there or somebody who doesn't like the idea of being penitential <laughs> or adoration, and they just stand in the middle of the prayer. And you're like, who is that person? What do they think they are? Who do they think they are? What are they mm-hmm. doing? But it, the norms can vary. Yeah, in, uh, We talked uh, before the podcast about the, the litany of the saints that's included in a number of you know, rituals of the church. And most of the time during the litany, the instructions tell us to kneel because we're kneeling in humble supplication uh, 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 to Christ and having all of the saints pray along with us. But in, um, uh, uh, during the Easter season and during Sundays, the rubric is always different. It says the people stand during these times as a kind of, kind of an imitation of the victorious Christ <laughs> standing and beseeching them too. But about this, you know, the kneeling, Cardinal Ratzinger says in the spirit of the liturgy, it's, uh, it, it's a particularly human, excuse me, a particularly Christian posture. I mean, the, the most fundamental, I don't know, one of the most fundamental virtues of, uh, of our faith is humility. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is what got our first parents in trouble. This is what gets us in trouble still today. And to bend one's knee to the ground or to kneel on the ground in, in a, is to literally ground yourself. I mean, humans came from the hummus, uh, from, from, from the earth. And Sounds to- delicious. <laughs> well, it depends who you ask. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Humus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, but to but to kneel is to proclaim your lowly state before someone in this case God who is uh, uh, superior above you. I mean, if you're really going to uh, uh, beseech someone to have mercy on you to, to grant you some favor, whether it was you know a human being or God Himself, you would assume you, know, you wouldn't prounce uh, uh, you know walk in in a very haughty state. Uh, you, you would. Through, uh, through bowing and kneeling, beseech the person who had the power to uh, answer your prayer. 
And so kneeling in this instance signifies our position as coming from the earth. In the same chapter from the Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, Pope Benedict uh, cites this, uh, this one of the desert fathers who has this image of the devil. And apart from him being uh, very, very ugly, he says there was one feature that he remembered is that the devil had no knees. It oh, was, weird. It, it was impossible for him to He kneel. doesn't need them. <laughs> it was, uh, he couldn't, uh, uh, he just refused to bow before, uh, before God. So, I mean, you can see why it, in some ways it's, a, it's an unpopular posture, but it's a true posture insofar as it speaks about who we are and where we've come from. And what's the great scriptural line? At the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bend. Right. In the heavens, on the, the earth, earth, and under, under the, the earth. earth. Even if they have no knees under the earth. <laughs> That's what they're supposed to be doing. So in the liturgy then, when do we, when do we kneel? You might kneel before Mass. Uh, we would kneel uh, during the Eucharistic prayer, perhaps after uh, the receiving of Holy Communion, uh, in both uh, uh, humble prayer and uh, adoration and maybe after Mass too. And so these three different postures kind of go together to uh, express and foster what we believe about the faith. So how come we don't kneel during the Gospel? Because we, we're humbled in front of you know, the message of Christ. That, that's what you said. We believe that is Christ you know, speaking to us. So how can we stand instead of kneeling during the Gospel? You listen too closely, Jesse. <laughs> Use my own words against me. The thing is that the liturgy is, what's the, what's the word? It's polyvalent. It means many things, and there's no single way to express everything all of the time. And so um, with the various meanings that the liturgy, liturgy has, we try to um, evoke those and sacramentalize those in a variety of different ways. Um, very possibly, it would not be inappropriate to kneel during uh, the gospel for, for the, those same theological reasons. But the tradition, as it's come to us and is now legislated uh, in the books, sees that standing is a more appropriate. Again, think about this litany of the saints. Sometimes we stand, sometimes we mm -hmm. kneel. Um, and so both of them can help to convey uh, that unseen truth. But here it's taking into account where are we in the liturgical week or the liturgical year. And so that's uh, working its way into the meaning we're trying to convey. And also it's important that we have a standard that we're all doing rather is that, than is that a pun too a stand no, I did not even think about that one oh, sometimes sure I, I pun accidentally it's it second nature no but no it's it's important that we all are on the same page of the germ uh, but so that we can collectively you know praise God in the same way right. rather than some people doing this some people doing that right. I the that probably helps. speaks about gestures fostering unity so if everyone's doing the same thing obviously that unifies them you know people doing the same chant at a, a football game or same gesture or posture uh, suddenly they're all one instead of doing their own thing and so if you're going to assemble into the image of the mystical body then one of the ways to do that is to all do the same thing although there's always the exceptions and there's always the variety I think it was Karl Barth, one of the 20th century uh, Protestant theologians, couldn't wrap his head around how we could do you know, things so many different ways. He called it the damnisha katholika und, meaning the damnable Catholic and. So oh, you, you oh, can yeah. stand and kneel. You can have... And you know, or. <laughs> right, right, and it's not an and or. It's, it's not an either or, it's an and. So you can honor God in the gospel by standing. You can honor God in the gospel by kneeling. You can honor God... <laughs> by being humble, or you can honor God by being comfortable in his presence because you've been adopted as a son. So there's lots of ways to do it, and so the church kind of regulates it universally and then locally. Let's take a concrete example of that, and that is uh, postures for the reception of uh, Holy Communion. 
So uh, what is the posture that we are supposed to have when we go up to receive ooh, communion? Ooh, I know this one. Yes? A yeah, you slight think, you think, bow of the head. Well, that, that's a gesture or an action. Oh, yeah. Okay. But what, standing. Do you you're go up standing. there and sit down? Oh, yeah, you're standing. Okay, you're standing, right? Uh, well, you have to stand to be able Unless to you're bow. at the extraordinary oh, form, then you kneel. <laughs> so We're we, talking about the ordinary form right now. Well, can you kneel at the ordinary? Okay, so maybe we should start up. Why, why does the, the, the church, at least in the Diocese of the United States, consider that in the ordinary form of the Roman Rite that standing is the, is the posture that, uh, that we should assume? I have a couple guesses. Well, don't guess. Well, it's an educated guess. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, does what it, does it signify? Well, you were just talking about earlier, you know, standing, you know, um, you know, being being in front of God and being able to stand in front of Him, and in this case, you receive and consume Christ. But also, there's the practicality of the procession, like you're all walking together towards, you know, the reception of communion. Yeah, I think that's the key word. Communion is mm-hmm. commun- The reception of communion actually bonds the cells, the mystical body, into that whole. Right? If that's the unseen reality of what's happening at that point our transformation into Christ and into his body, uh, one with, the, one with the, each other, what's the best way to help sacramentalize that? And that is to uh, assume a common posture, and in this case, uh, standing. At least now, for, for many centuries, it was different, and still um, the, the instruction gives the permission for an individual who wishes to kneel uh, to be able to do that. But I think what the church is trying to get us to do is to signify communion with each other by the reception of the sacrament, which is, in fact, doing that very thing. And one of the little bulletins that the U.S. Catholic bishops put out, um, liturgical posture, said that um, Christ is risen from the dead. So he's not lying in the tomb anymore. He's, he's risen from the dead. from the dead or sitting from the dead. He is standing, is risen from the dead. That's the cause of our salvation. So it, it's, a, it's therefore of just or suitable to receive in the posture of the resurrected body. And it, it sounds like you could probably come up with reasons for different postures for the reception of communion. But I, going back to that unity thing, I think that's one of the most important things here. Dennis, you talked about if we're all chanting the same thing, you know, it sounds good, it sounds beautiful. But if somebody's chanting something different, it sounds awful. Like I've I've been to a Cubs game before, and you you chant uh, the line from "Take me out to the ball game," and you say "Root, root, root for that," and everybody says Cubbies. But if there are Brewers fans there, they try to really loudly against the grain say Brewers, and it, and it doesn't sound good to the ears. There's something different there. Right, and sometimes variety is a, just a natural expression of different people's understanding, what, whatever they need spiritually that day. Uh, standing, kneeling, whatever it happens to be. Generally, the church gives norms that help us all do the same thing to foster that unity, but often gives exceptions, as in the case of the latest version of the general instruction. The previous one was translated as, oh, if if they kneel, you should give them communion, but use it as an opportunity for pastoral uh, education on why they shouldn't be kneeling. (laughs) What does the new translation say? Yeah, the new one says, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, the norm established for the Diocese of the United States of America is that Holy Communion is to be received standing, comma, unless an individual member of the faithful wishes to receive communion while kneeling, period. So you see, even just, this is, uh, this is a change in like a, the last 10 years that there's more of a, uh, I guess, an openness for the individual to be able to uh, receive uh, kneeling. But again, what they're trying to convey is, a, is an expression of communion, which the reception of the sacrament is bringing about. But you're right, Jesse. I mean, either of these would be appropriate postures for the reception of communion. Sitting, 
all things being equal, probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's, and there not, is and there has been the legitimate variations on the practice. It's not really worth arguing which is better because the, the church, at least the USCCB, gives us the norms for the diocese in America, like you said. Well, somebody should argue about which is better. But in the, <laughs> well, end, yeah, right. in the end, we have a magisterium that uh, adjudicates and decides and, uh, you know, that... Uh, you know, the rubrics aren't a heaven sent, but there's a practicality to how, how, we, how we worship. And uh, I, my opinion is that we should have, uh, you know, the, the docility to read those and follow them. Take, take, take him as given. It's very edifying to see someone who wants to kneel before their Lord in humility because they recognize the, the grandeur and the majesty of Christ and the Blessed Sacrament. That's a, real, that's a good thing. But the mm-hmm. norms of the church have asked us to do something that fosters our unity. It's not that it's bad, it's just it's not the norm of the church. Yeah. And there's a humility to following that as well. Right, even yeah. if it's not your preference at that yeah. moment. So I have two questions in practicality, and one of them is, can a priest in, uh, initiate a norm in his parish where the parishioners receive kneeling? And then the second part to that is, if you're visiting a parish, and that's the norm for that, for that parish that they're kneeling, do you kneel or do you stand? Dennis? I don't know. You run a worship office, Chris. This is <laughs> what was the first question? Well, can a can a priest in, institute a norm for his parish that the prisoners receive kneeling as the norm for the parish? Nah, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, a priest or a bishop or a deacon or a Dawson liturgy director or a liturgical institute operates within the framework that the church gives to it. Mm-hmm. What is allowed and what is not allowed, and none of those just listed is is free to choose things that are outside of those mm-hmm. those bounds. Um, but there are parishes that, you know, that is the norm of how they receive. And, uh, if it were me, I would, uh, for the sake of the, the unity of the mystical body, I would, uh, do what is done by those right. around me, presuming it's not, you know, contrary to, uh, the nature of the faith of the living. Cartwheels like pretty much ruled out. Yeah. Yeah. Rule out the cartwheel. <laughs> Mm. The old cartwheel reception of communion. I forgot about that. Logistically difficult too. Right. Yeah. Hey, can we take one other example that, uh, is confusing if it's known at all and that's at the uh where we go from sitting to standing at the prayer the orate fratres which means pray brethren that my sacrifice i've heard a lot about this i don't know what the discrepancy is but i've heard a lot of people talk about it so what is it in most parishes people start standing up as soon as the priest says pray brothers and sisters yeah so i think in in the former sacramentary it said the people stand then the priest says pray brothers and sisters that our sacrifice may be acceptable to god the almighty father and the people respond may the lord accept the the sacrifice sacrifice hands but with the uh, the third edition of the Roman Missal, that was rearranged a little bit. And so how it reads now is the priest standing at the altar and facing the people says, uh, pray, beloved, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. And then there's a rubric that says the people, people stand, stand and oh, reply. And then they okay. reply. And so I didn't know that. You didn't know that. I just do whatever everybody else does. That's the spirit, Jesse. Right. No, in, in most places, most often, uh, this tweak of the rubric has not been noticed or implemented. And so it, most of our parishes still do it the, uh, do it the other way. Um, but in some places, they wait for the priest to make the invitation, and then the people stand at that point. So the question is, knowing what you know about sitting and knowing what you know about standing, why is it appropriate that the people would stand and make that response? I'm going to defer to Dennis on this one. You haven't talked much this episode, so... 
And maybe the, you know, maybe the answer is applicable to both uh, forms, but why would, why would we, it be appropriate for the people to stand and make the response that they do versus mm-hmm. remain seated and make that response? Well, maybe because it follows up on the my sacrifice and yours, right? So you have the headship of the priest offering sacrifice and the people offer their, offer their sacrifice as well. And it's, it's kind of a prayer that is sent forward up to the altar to the, for the priest to take to the father. And it, it's much different than a sitting. In fact, we almost never, people ne- almost never speak sitting, except maybe well, that's what I was gonna say. the response at the ends of uh, the readings. Yeah, we're almost standing or kneeling, I guess, during some parts during the, the consecration. I think we, some of the mass parts we sing, but we almost never sit and say something in mass. Or at least we don't say something to to God mm-hmm. from that position. Or so there's a couple of right. things that you're saying here. One is we're called upon to sacrifice, and that is the most active thing that you can possibly do in the liturgy. So it is a call for action. And in fact, what is the what is the the word is called orate, and that is a called an imperative. It's Pray. A, right. It, it is a, it is a command. It's not an invitation to do this. It is a command to pray. Right. So the priest is giving us a command to act in our natural response and our supernatural response would be to stand so that's one reason the second i think is that uh, as, as you're talking when we address uh someone important whether it's on the human plane i mean you're, you're watching c-span whatever it is you're watching a parliamentary procedure if it's your turn to talk or your turn to an address an important person you stand up to address uh, that person so who are we speaking to at this point uh, we're to, speaking to the, to the priest, or at least we're making a okay. We're making a prayer though. To that the God. Lord accepts His sacrifice, right? And so, I mean, does that which posture best parallels or expresses this great prayer that we're making? That uh, what's what's the response? May the, May the Lord, Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. hands. All right, so it's it's not the type of thing that you would say from a seated position. Right. My good friend uh, Father Connor Danstrom from Three Dogs North podcast really woke, opened my eyes to that prayer. He says before he goes to say the Eucharistic prayer, he actually like wants the people's help. So they're actually praying that the priest can do this. You know, in the Old Testament temple, to go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, that was scary business. You know, if you didn't do it right, you could be blown to bits, you know. So the idea of may the sacrifice be done well for the people is not just the priest thing alone, but the people pray in their way. They participate by praying that the priest do it well for them. So I imagine it's kind of like an extension of the priestly standing gesture. That's re- I like that. That's really great. Yeah, it's really changed my view. When I say that prayer now, if I'm really alert in Mass, I'm, I really form the intention, may this priest <laughs> do this well for God's glory and our sanctification. Well, Chris, you have opened our minds, at least mine, maybe Dennis already. <laughs> Mine's still closed. So. All right. <laughs> but in all these things, the takeaway point is know that whether we are sitting or standing or kneeling, that all of these postures are, are, are not meaningless, ritualistic script. Uh, they're meant to convey something of our hearts and our, and our minds, and they're meant to foster something uh, likewise in us. And they keep us from dozing off. Imagine if you had to sit still for 45 minutes, you know, up, down, up, down. It's good just for the natural rhythm of the body. You know, get up, mm-hmm. wake up. Get yeah, like up, calisthenics, that's right. <laughs> Thus we've ended where we began. Right. Well, uh, I think this has definitely helped me out a lot understanding all of this. And uh, I think it's probably time that we take a question from a listener, right? Should we sit for that or stand for that? 
probably. I'm going to stand. Chris will sit. I'm going to stand. I won't stand for that. I'm now saluting to our questioner. (laughs) But that's a gesture, not a posture. Oh, well. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so this week we have a question from Jacob, and Jacob actually has a question about one of our past episodes. He says, In the episode on altars, one of you made a comment about having multiple altars in the sanctuary, one main altar and two side altars, and how this dilutes the symbolism of the one Christ enthroned in the sanctuary of heaven. What are we to do now when our older churches have both the old high altar and the newer freestanding altar? Are we to remove one of them so as to better reflect the heavenly reality? If so, which one? I respond that it was Dennis who made that comment. Yeah, I think I think he's the one that has Dennis. to answer then. First of all, Jacob, you are my hero. First of all, you signed your name to your question. Second of all, you asked a question that I can answer. Chris is our document brainiac usually, and I just have to sit here and hum to myself while he acts smart. So now I get to do something. So here is the theoretical ideal. The altar signifies Christ. It's the banqueting table of the heavenly Jerusalem. And... In the theological thinking, there's one of them. There's one Christ standing in glory or seated in glory, surrounded by angels and saints uh, receiving adoration. There's not another Jesus, you know, to the side of that Jesus and another Jesus to the side of that Jesus. So the general instruction in the Roman Missal says in building new churches, it is preferable for a single altar to be erected. So specifically new churches. And it, it very much is the 20th century rediscovery, I think, of the early Christian basilica model. If you think of St. Peter's in Rome or some of the oldest basilicas, there'll be one altar, usually up quite high, maybe under a canopy or baldacchino of some kind. And even though there might be a thousand side chapels, each with their own altar, there's one altar kind of in each sort of geographic room. Every little microcosmic chapel, or which is a microcosm of the heavens, has one altar in it. So the ideal is the single altar. Now, when you get an old church where there might be three, five, seven altars, Um, some of the complaints in the liturgical movement of the 20th century was that you have the high altar and then there would be all these devotional altars uh, right by them. And they were all kind of diluting the nature of it. But the church realizes their artistic value. So um, in that same paragraph 303 from the general instruction, it says that in existing churches where they already are a lot of altars, uh, they can be kept, the traditional 
what they call the high altar or the altar pieces, um, but that another altar should be erected so that the, the rites are celebrated there. So there's what we now call an altar of sacrifice, which would be the sort of primary altar where the ritual takes place, and then an altar of reservation might be where the tabernacle is. So there's and any... You might have reservations about that. Well, actually, in a way I do, you know... The, it's kind of um, a concession because this stuff we have is so beautiful, we don't want to destroy it. But two altars is a little weird. You know, if you're dr- constantly drawn back to this big reredos or this big sculptured thing in the back wall, all the attention goes there and people want to put candles and flowers on it. And then there's this little kind of box in the front. It kind of loses visually. So, you know, the really aggressive liturgical um, tri- reformers of the 30s and 40s would, would tear down the wedding cake altar, as they call it, and put up a baldacchino or big canopy over the freestanding altar. This happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, which had this glorious white marble altar. Uh, with a high rare dose, and they took it apart and got rid of it and made this glorious four-sided bronze baldacchino over the altar. So the altar is still the number one thing. And in fact, it's more the number one thing, and what they put in there was uh, beautiful. Uh, but they got rid of the old high altar. I don't I don't know we have the guts to do that today because we don't want to destroy our, our architectural inheritance, and we're not sure what we're going to get in its mm-hmm, place. I think right. people were beaten up in the 70s by taking out all the nice stuff and not getting anything nice back. Uh, so there's a kind of rigorous approach, which would really demand one altar. And then there's this kind of, sort of gentle concession that if these high altars or old altars are of great artistic merit, that they should be kept. But that, but that second uh, approach is sort of canonized in the general instruction, though, right? That seems to be the direction of the, the rubrics and, and instructions themselves. Right. Those are the norms now. And um, I think it's a response to all the destruction that happened uh, after the council. And, you know, when it talks about the position of the tabernacle, it gives the option again of reserving the Blessed Sacrament. I think the phrase is on an old altar, no longer used for celebration. So it's right there. It's permitted. It's allowed. It's a direction. Uh, very, uh, in fact, it's the preferred option. So um, it's, it's what the church is asking for. So any new churches would have to uh, be a part of this new rule and understanding. Right. Theoretically, that, I mean, that's what it says. In building new churches, it's preferable for a single altar to be erected. You do see this sometimes. People are building new churches, even though they go by the old altarpiece from a closed church because they want something up in the rear wall, and it's not really an altar. Uh, but then they set up the freestanding altar, and so they're building new churches that set up this, uh, I don't want to say division, but you know, which, is, which is winning the day visually. You know, I would mm-hmm. be much prefer a single altar with a baldacchino than a single altar and another altar 15 feet behind it that's much more visually uh, interesting and active. But I know what you mean about St. Peter's. I've been there. If you go during the day, especially in the morning, uh, you can see almost dozens of priests saying Mass, you know, personal Mass, because they want to say Mass in St. Peter's. And you kind of, you don't know what to do because you're like, oh my gosh, I got, I got a kneel or, you know, something amazing is happening and it can be a little confusing. So that's a, But really, when you look down the nave of St. Peter's, you know where the altar There's is. There's one primary altar. It's under the mm-hmm. baldacchino, and it wins the day. And mm-hmm. then all the secondary ones are very clearly secondary. I think a lot of the responses were you had secondary altars that were crowding into the sanctuary, and they were competing with the primacy of the what we would then call the high altar. And so they're saying, oh, push those out a little bit. Uh, it's just about recovering the primacy of the primary symbols of the church, which can become a bit of a, of a drag and, a, and a, a, a too literal rule if you're not careful. But... That's the principle. Let the altar be the altar. Anything that confuses people <laughs> that there's some other thing other than the premise mm-hmm. of the altar should be just gently dealt with. All right, Jacob, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at Thank you and God bless. 
The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.